Let's turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. To the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 3. morning we want to read Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. Please follow along as I read. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to God's eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. Let's pray together once again. Lord, bless now the preaching of your word. Open our hearts, open our minds to understand the scriptures and help us to uh, perceive uh, the truths of your word and to rightly apply them to our hearts and our lives. And may you even do that by your Holy Spirit, sealing the truth upon our hearts. Bless this hour. May it not be wasted, but may you come and show us your word and open it up to us by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The last few weeks, uh, we've been in Ephesians chapter 2. We took a a short break last week. Zach preached from Psalm 65, but we come back again to our sermon series in Ephesians. And we've been meditating, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, and all that Christ has done in reconciling uh, various groups to one another in the church. Specifically in Ephesians chapter 2, Jews and Gentiles. That God has taken these two groups who formerly were alienated toward one another, who were hostile toward one another, who were divided from one another, And through what Christ did on the cross, through His blood, through His flesh, uh, by the cross, He has brought those two groups and made them one. He has brought together one new humanity in Christ Jesus. And now the Gentiles, those who were formerly far off from God, without hope and without God in the world, they've been brought near. And we considered last time we were in Ephesians chapter 2 that they are now uh, fellow citizens of the same kingdom with the Jews, that they're both part of this new kingdom in Christ Jesus. And they're fellow members of the same body, and they're part of this great temple that God is building and that He's indwelling by His Holy Spirit. That God has made people who are to be united with one another from various groups. And we considered one of the applications for us is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a place where there ought not to be division. There ought not to be hostility and alienation in the church, but various people from different cultural backgrounds, different social settings, different socioeconomic uh, uh, places on on the spectrum there can be in the same church together and can celebrate the unity they have in Jesus Christ. And that one thing Jesus accomplished on the cross by shedding his blood was actually to bring about a united body of people who dwell in unity with one another as the new humanity in Christ Jesus. Well, then in chapter 3, something interesting happens. Uh, the Apostle Paul begins a prayer for the Ephesians. And I believe it's because Paul recognizes uh, that dwelling in the church together, these groups that were formerly hostile toward one another, who hated one another, who were divided from one another, now they're to live in the same church together and be one with one another and dwell in unity together. 
And I believe, I, I, Paul speculates, uh, that this is going to require tremendous grace on their part. They're going to need power and help from God in order to do this, to dwell as one body together. And so he starts to pray for them in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. But very quickly, he follows this digression. He, he sort of starts the prayer and then stops. And then in verses 2 through 13, there's this digression about his ministry and what it is that God has called him to do. And he doesn't pick up the prayer again until verse 14. And then in the remainder of chapter 3, he finishes out that prayer. Well, what I want us to look at today is actually this digression that happens very early at the very start of the prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. In this section, Paul sets out to offer prayer. He begins it in verse 1, and then the prayer is interrupted by this digression in verses 2 through 13. And the digression in verses 2 through 13 is essentially uh, an extended explanation of Paul's ministry, of Paul's unique role in redemptive history of conveying this message that Jew and Gentile are one in Christ and that the church is a new humanity and it's a new community and one united body through what the Lord Jesus has done. Look again at verse 1. Paul starts with these words, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and he stops and begins this digression. I just want to acknowledge a few things in that first verse before we get into verses 2 through 13. Paul starts by identifying himself as a prisoner, and that's um, not figurative. He literally was a prisoner at this time for the sake of Christ Jesus. He's in Rome uh, writing this epistle. He's in prison. He's bound in chains. Later on in chapter 6 and verse 20, that's how he describes himself. He says, I, Paul, am an ambassador in chains. I'm a prisoner of the Lord, he says. He's in prison as a direct result of his allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and his determination to publish the gospel in every place. And so as this great missionary, this great minister of the gospel, he's landed himself in prison and he writes as this prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. It was precisely Paul's commitment to get the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, that landed him in prison. And that's how he actually starts his prayer. But remember... When Paul first came to Ephesus, he first preached to a group of Jews in the synagogue. And then after leaving the synagogue, he preaches to the Gentiles. And there's mass conversion in the city of Ephesus. And he's there for, we think, three to three and a half years and sees tremendous fruit. The word of the Lord prevails mightily among the Ephesians. And then he leaves, presumably never to return again. He even says that to the elders at Ephesus, which is recorded in Acts uh, chapter 20. He says, I'm never going to see your face again. And then uh, about seven years later, he's in prison in Rome, and he pens this epistle to them. Well, by this time, it's likely that most of the people in the Ephesian church or churches don't know the Apostle Paul. They probably know who he is, but they probably never met him face to face. There have probably been uh, now a new generation of converts and people who are part of the church, and Paul is writing to them. And it's in Ephesians 3 that we have the most personal account of Paul's relationship to the Ephesians. You might remember we said at the start of this series that Ephesians is a very impersonal letter. There's not a lot of uh, personal information that the Apostle Paul conveys. He doesn't uh, write specific things to specific individuals in the church very much as he does in many of his other letters. But here Paul does get very personal. And he starts this prayer for the Ephesians and it's almost like he recognizes, you know, there are probably lots of people there who don't exactly fully understand the ministry God has given me. And that's why he takes this digression to verses 2 through 13 that we'll consider this morning. So I have two points to this message that I want us to consider in verses 2 through 13. The first is this, that Paul was given a mystery. Paul was given a mystery. And then secondly, we see that Paul was given a ministry. Paul was given a mystery. He was the steward of a mystery. And he was also given a ministry. So let's look first at the mystery that Paul was given. And let's read again together verses 1 through 6. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, 
and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Two things I want us to see here with respect to the mystery. The first we want to look at is the revelation of the mystery. And then secondly, the content of the mystery. There's there's revelation of a mystery to Paul and the other apostles. And then we want to look at the content of the mystery. Specifically, what is this mystery given to the apostle Paul? Paul says in verse 2 that God gave him a stewardship. A stewardship. He's entrusted with something. Uh, Kids, if I gave you uh, maybe a, a key to my house... And I said, look, I'm going away on vacation. I want you to steward this key. Don't lose it. Okay, this is your unique stewardship. I want you to hang on to this and not lose this key, okay? That would be sort of a trust that I'm giving to you. You need to take care of that. You need to hang on to that and not allow it to be lost. Well, that's sort of the idea here that Paul was given a stewardship. He was given something that he was supposed to uh, steward, to guard, to protect, to keep. He was given a stewardship. He says, verse 3, that... The mystery was made known to him by revelation. There was some mystery that was revealed to Paul. Paul was uh, given insight into it. He was was given to know what that mystery was. And we're going to see in a moment that thing that was a mystery is no longer a mystery. It was revealed to Paul and the other apostles. He says, verse 4, that he has been given insight into the mystery of Christ. Uh, The idea is that he's been given the the opportunity to see what it is that is this mystery in Christ. God revealed to him, gave him understanding and insight into the mystery. And he says, verse 5, that this mystery was hidden before, but it's now been revealed to Christ's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In generations past, whenever it was that Paul was given this mystery, this stewardship, this thing that he now has insight into, it wasn't revealed in times past. That is that something new has come along. Uh, this thing that was formerly a mystery has now been revealed. It's now been brought to light. And Paul and the other apostles and the prophets have been given insight into this. They've been given revelation of this mystery by the Holy Spirit. Paul and the other apostles are understood here to be stewards of special revelation from God. Paul wants his readers to appreciate that he and the other apostles stand at the crossroads of redemptive history. It was to them that God chose to reveal what was previously hidden to former generations. There's a new covenant now. Something new has come along. And Paul and the apostles are sort of at the pivot of that transition. They're at that crossroads. And they've been given this special revelation of this mystery that they're now to convey. The apostles were the, one to, the ones to whom God gave the stewardship of this mystery. They were the guardians the stewards of special revelation from God, which is here referred to as a mystery. So they've had something given to them, something revealed to them. Now we want to see what it is that that mystery was. Let's look secondly now at the content of the mystery. Verse 6. This mystery is, and Paul just comes right out and makes it clear for us, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He said earlier that this mystery is already written about in brief. I think he's referring to the previous verses in chapter 2. But he says, this is the mystery. That those Gentiles who formerly were far off, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the promises of God, without hope and without God in the world, this is the mystery. Now, in Christ, they're included. They're fellow heirs. They're fellow members of the same body. And they too are partakers of the promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel is now theirs. They too can come now through the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and faith and be part of the people of God. Those who formerly were far off, now they're brought near by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You might recall in the Old Covenant, uh, the Israelites were God's elect people. To them were given the promises of God. To them were given the covenants of promise. And they were the ones who had the system by which they could approach God. And if you wanted to come to God, you had to be circumcised, you had to join the Jewish community, and you had to adopt the various sacrifices and rituals of the Israelites. But now Paul is saying, no more. Now we come through Jesus. Now we all come through one Spirit. Now we all can enter in, Jew and Gentile alike, and be members of the body of Christ. And this is the mystery that God gave to Paul and the other apostles and prophets through the Spirit. And this is the trust that he's been given. This is the, in, the, the, the revelation that he's been given insight to see and to understand. 
We don't know exactly when it is that God revealed these things to Paul. It could have been at his conversion in Acts 9 when the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul uh, as, as this uh, religious Pharisee and this Jewish zealot who was persecuting the church. Perhaps it was then that through the Spirit, the Lord Jesus revealed this mystery to Paul. Uh, but whenever it was, we know that in time, the Holy Spirit came and revealed to Paul that now, through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Gentiles, we read, are made fellow heirs. They're children of God, just like the Jews through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Gentiles are members of the same body, part of the same community. They're one in this new humanity. And the Gentiles are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospels. Which means for us here who are Gentiles, non-Jews, through what Jesus has done, through this mystery that was revealed to Paul, we too can be made partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Now here it is that Paul arrives at the point in this section. He tells us exactly what this mystery is, but it's not like he's introducing an entirely new idea. Remember we said that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, are sort of like the thesis statement of the book of Ephesians. That's where sort of the whole book is summed up. So let me ask you to turn back there for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, and let's look briefly at verses 9 through 10. Here we read that, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. What's the purpose? A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. What is it that God's doing in the world? He's begun and is perfecting this cosmic work of reconciliation in Christ Jesus. He's uniting all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. And we've seen as the epistle unfolds, remember in Ephesians 2.1, we saw that God is reconciling individual sinners to himself. Those who were formerly dead in trespasses and sins, God made alive together with Christ. He gave them new life and he saved them and he drew them to the Lord Jesus and reconciled them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one of the ways that God is bringing about this cosmic work of reconciliation. But then in Ephesians 2.11 and following, we saw He's not only reconciling individual sinners to Himself, He's, he's reconciling Jew and Gentile to one another. Disparate groups who formerly were alienated toward one another, he's, he's drawing them together. He's reconciling relationships to each other in the body of Jesus Christ. But not only that, He's reconciling these groups, Jew and Gentile, to God. So the cosmic work of reconciliation is being expanded, not just to individuals, but now this whole community, this new humanity in Christ Jesus. And this is explicitly what Paul is now talking about in our text in Ephesians 3, 6. Is this the mystery? These Gentiles, they're fellow heirs. They're members of the same body. They're partakers of the gospel promises. They too are being reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus. This is the mystery that was entrusted to the Apostle Paul. This is the stewardship that Paul and the other apostles were given. This was the trust that they were to guard, to protect, and to convey. Paul was given a mystery. And that mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. But now secondly, secondly in our text this morning, we want to see that Paul was given a ministry. So Paul was given a mystery, this trust, this stewardship. Then Paul was given a ministry. Please follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, which was just mentioned in verse 6, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So I ask you not to lose heart, over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Here we see that Paul was given a ministry. He was given a, a calling from God. You might, uh, 
meet with a young person in a, a coffee shop and they might ask the question, you know, what does God want me to do with my life? What is God calling me to do? What is God's will for my life? And that uh, cry goes out from the heart of many young Christian people across coffee shops and campuses all over America. What does God want me to do? What's his, his will for my life? And maybe you ask that question. What's God called me to? Uh, what am I to do with my life? What is his will for me? Well, Paul did not have to wonder what that was. Uh, Christ made it explicit for Paul. He was made a minister of the gospel. And he was to preach to the Gentiles. And he was to bring to light this mystery that God had trusted to him. There's a few things I want us to see here. Three things in particular about this ministry that God gave to the Apostle Paul. First, we want to see the foundation of Paul's ministry. Secondly, the substance of Paul's ministry. What exactly was it? And thirdly, the goal of Paul's ministry. Let's look first and briefly at the foundation of Paul's ministry. Verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. The foundation of Paul's ministry, we see, was the grace of God. The foundation of Paul's ministry was this enablement, this power, this grace that God gave to the Apostle Paul. Paul was not uh, one who qualified himself to preach the gospel, but he was given a divine and supernatural and gracious call to minister the gospel to the Gentiles. He was not this theological elite who had somehow um, uh, lived this exceedingly moral life and achieved this special status in God's kingdom and, and thereby earned the opportunity to preach the gospel. But God, by His grace, moved to convert this sinful, wicked persecutor of the church who He says was formerly a blasphemer, an insolent man. God calls the Apostle Paul by His grace and He makes him a minister of the gospel. In other places we read, specifically in 1 Timothy 1, that Paul has this awareness that I'm the least of all the saints. Uh, I am the lowest uh, among God's people. I was the chief of sinners. But God chose me so that through me, as the foremost sinner, He might show His perfect grace and patience toward all who believe. And there are some preachers, commentators, theologians, who speculate that, well, Paul here is just conveying typical Christian humility. I am the least of all the saints. I'm a nobody. But really, obviously, he had achieved much in the Christian life and, and therefore was qualified. Well, I really don't think that's right. I think that misses the point. I really do believe Paul looked at his past record as a persecutor of the church, as one who breathed out threats against the church, one who persecuted those who called on the name of Christ. He's looking at his past sin, his past life, He's looking at what God has now made him as a trophy of grace. And he's looking at the sinfulness of his heart that he shares with us in Romans 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is taking stock of his own heart, his own life. And he says, yeah, I think I must be the least of all the saints. This isn't false humility. I think Paul really believes this. And he recognizes the fact that I'm now a minister to the Gentiles. The fact that I have this opportunity, this calling from God to preach the gospel. It's all of his grace. And he has hope that this grace that God has given him in calling him to be a minister of the gospel will also bring to him enablement and power as he opens his mouth to preach the word of God. God, through his grace, is supplying help to Paul because the foundation of his calling is a gracious call. God is supplying grace to do that very work that God has called him to do. The foundation of Paul's ministry is the grace of God. But now, secondly, I want you to notice the substance of Paul's ministry. Substance of his ministry, which is found in verses 8-9. through Paul says, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Paul, in the coffee shop, wondering, what is it that God has called me to do? This is the answer. He's been given this calling to preach to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. The stewardship, the mystery that Paul was given, he wasn't supposed to sort of uh, hide it under his pillow. 
This stewardship, this trust, this mystery, he was to open it up and convey it for the Gentiles. He was to bring to light the truths that God had revealed to him, and he was to go into all the nations, and he was to preach the gospel. I want you to notice first here that this calling that Paul was given was primarily a calling to preach. Paul's ministry, the ministry that God gave to him was to preach the Word of God, to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He was called in a special way, we could say even in a unique way, to publish the good news of Jesus Christ in every place. His ministry was primarily one of preaching, but also it was a a ministry to a particular group of people. Read, he was called to preach to a primary audience of Gentiles. Paul, in this sense, was a missionary. He was called to go into all the world and to plant churches and to preach the gospel and to win converts and to publish the message of the gospel in every place. And that's why we see in the book of Acts and in other places this this feverish missionary ministry of the Apostle Paul as he's going from place to place and, and preaching the gospel and establishing churches and winning converts. This is what God had called him to do. This was the unique ministry that God had given him. He was to publish the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was to reveal this mystery that the Gentiles are now included, that they're fellow heirs and that they're partakers of the promises of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was given a missionary ministry to the Gentiles. But it wasn't only the Gentiles. A secondary audience is in view, and that's the Jews as well. Because he says, look again at verse 9, he was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This mystery that Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ and that they're one in the church and that they're reconciled to one another and to God, Paul was supposed to bring this to light. This was no longer to remain a mystery. Uh, It was no longer to be mysterious. In ages past it was. The Jews did not quite understand that in some sense the nations were going to come and how that was going to work out and Was that going to be in the new heavens and new earth? And they couldn't quite put this mystery together, but it was through Paul and the apostles that this mystery was revealed. And now Paul is to tell the Jews and the Gentiles that they're one in Christ. And this is what we've seen he's done in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, that they're one in Christ. And to the Jews and the Gentiles, they're now given the promises of the gospel. Curtis Vaughn writes this, In these words... Paul depicts himself as a teacher whose task is to bring out the profound implications of the gospel. God particularly wanted him to cause all men to see the scope of the divine plan of redemption. He was to publish the good news to everyone. And Jew and Gentile alike are to be partakers of the promises of God, the promises of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now thirdly and finally, we have the goal of Paul's ministry. It's given this ministry, and we've seen its foundation, we've seen its substance, but there's a goal attached to it. There's a reason Paul was given this ministry, and it's recorded in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Why was Paul given this mystery? Moreover, why was he given this ministry? Why was he to preach to the Gentiles and open up this mystery for everyone that Jews and Gentiles are now one in Christ in the church, that the dividing wall has been torn down, and that hostility and alienation and division are banished from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was he given that mystery and that ministry? Well, it's in verse 10, stated most plainly, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And what on earth does this text mean? That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's a bit of a complex verse. What exactly is Paul getting at here? How should we understand this text? I'm going to ask you, we really need to focus in here, okay? Uh, I'm going to offer my best understanding of what it is that Paul is getting at here. We're Bible people, right? We want to understand the Bible. So zero in on verse 10 and understand why it is. This is for us, y'all, that 
God gave Paul this mystery, this ministry, why we want to ask. And he tells us in verse 10, let's labor and understand it. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, I see three things here. Okay, three things. First of all, there's a subject in our text. The subject is, eyes on the text, Ephesians 3.10, the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God. That's the subject of the verse. And it's going to be revealed. It's going to be made known. Okay, that's the, the subject. The manifold wisdom of God. That's at issue here. And then we have an object. To whom is this manifestation given? It's given to a particular group. In verse 10 it says it was given to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So we have this thing, this subject, the, the manifold wisdom of God. And it's made known to whom? It's made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Subject, object, okay? And then thirdly, I see that there's an instrument through which the wisdom of God is made known. See that instrument there? It's at the beginning of verse 10, through the church. So the subject, the manifold wisdom of God, it's being made known to the rulers, principalities, the heavenly places, and that revelation, that manifestation, that being made known is happening through this instrument, through the church. So let's look at each one of these. Let's look again at the subject. There's the revelation or manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God. The Greek word here for manifold is literally the many-sided wisdom of God. Why was Paul given this mystery? And why was he given this ministry to convey that mystery to the nations? It's so that there would be this manifestation, this revelation, this display, this making known of the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God apparently is that through the Lord Jesus Christ, He's reconciled sinners to Himself, and He's reconciled groups to one another in the church, and He's brought about this new humanity in Christ Jesus. And that through the gospel, through Christ's coming, the nations, the Gentiles, are now included in the promises of God. And the way is opened up for them to be partakers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is understood to be the manifold wisdom of God, the plan of God, and it's supposed to be displayed and revealed and manifested. The manifold wisdom of God, the many-sided wisdom of God by which sinners are saved, by which the nations are brought in to be fellow partakers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the wisdom of God. And it's understood to be wisdom because it's, it's not in any way what man would have conceived as the way through which Gentiles would be brought in and sinners would be converted. No one in the Old Testament had this figured out. Uh, no one throughout Jesus' ministry had this figured out. And yet God's wisdom is greater than man's. And through the Lord Jesus Christ, this great redemptive plan is being unfolded and we're able to behold this wonderful plan of redemption that is profound and confounds the wisdom of men. The wisdom of God is greater than man's wisdom. And this great display, this great manifestation of God's wisdom has happened in the gospel. So that's, that's the subject. That's the, the wisdom of God that is being displayed or made known or manifested. And now let's look at the object. It's being manifested to whom? We're told it's to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now I don't know about you, I find that a little puzzling. Paul was given a ministry, right? given this mystery that he was supposed to disclose to others, preach to others, that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, they're members of the same body, and they're partakers of the promises of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I read on down through chapter 3, and I get to verse 10, and I read that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known, you would think it would say, to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the world. But it didn't say that. Paul did say he was given this ministry to preach to the Gentiles. He was supposed to bring to light for everyone this, this mystery. And then when we get to verse 10, there's a different object in mind. This great plan of redemption, uh, the wisdom of God that is to be made known and manifest and revealed. We read it's revealed or manifest or made known to the, prince, the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now, how should we understand who the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are? I see three options. Okay, three options. Again, we're Bible people, right? We want to understand what the Scriptures say. And we want to open up this verse. Three options here 
for who the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are. What Paul could mean, first of all, first option, uh, is that the rulers and authorities in heavenly places are like the angels and the saints and this great uh, company of the angelic hosts who witness the work of redemption. And to some degree, that would make sense, right? We, we read in other passages of Scripture that apparently the angels did not comprehend the plan of redemption, that they, they longed to look into these things, and, and, and even the angels witnessed the unfolding of the plan of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that saints of old didn't quite understand what God was doing uh, in the gospel, but they, they were believing by faith in the promises of God and in these covenants. And yet it's not until Christ comes that that mystery is completely revealed. So it could be that these rulers and authorities in heavenly places are the saints in heaven and the angels in heaven. That's the first option. The second option is that Paul could be referring to demons and to spiritual forces of darkness and to Satan. And that to them, God is showing this great plan, this great wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church. That that it's to that group, to, to dark forces and to demons and to Satan that this great plan is being revealed. And then there's a third option, the option I opt for, and that is that the revelation is to both groups. Uh, that this manifestation, this uh, wisdom of God that's being made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, that's being made known to angels, to demons, to Satan, and to dark spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And I opt for this third option for a couple of reasons. First of all, the use of the term heavenly places. Now, we've not talked a lot about this, okay? But that term heavenly places, which is used five or six times in the epistle to the Ephesians, is a term that's altogether unique to the book of Ephesians. Literally, it, it reads the heavenlies. So we have every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in, the ESV says, the heavenly places, but literally the heavenlies. We've been raised with Christ Jesus and we sit with Him in the heavenly places. And this revelation is is given to the spirits and to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And if we go to every reference to what the heavenly places uh, are in the book of Ephesians, we learn a number of things about this unique phrase. It's used five times in the book. The term is understood to be a sphere in which spirits reside. And it includes apparently both good and evil spirits. It's also a sphere in which Christians are seated with Christ. And in which Christ Himself is active. We read that in, verse, in Hebrew, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 that we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. But we read also that the heavenly places apparently are the realm in which evil spirits and Wicked forces are at work, and where Satan is at work, and where darkness is at work. So we shouldn't think of the heavenly places to be a reference to heaven, right? But there is no sin, there is no evil, this isn't the new heavens and new earth. It's probably better for us to think of the heavenly places as the spirit realm, or spiritual dimension, a spiritual sphere, where Christ dwells and Christ reigns and Christians are seated with Him, and where apparently there are evil, dark forces... And where Christ reigns and rules over those wicked forces. But there's also a parallel in our text. It's the second reason why I believe this reference to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places is a reference to angels and also demons and Satan and dark forces. And it's found in a parallel I see in Ephesians 3.10 and also in Ephesians 6.12. Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now flip over to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the great text on spiritual warfare. Uh, we're told that Christian people are inaugurated into spiritual warfare whereby they do war not against flesh and blood. But again, look at verse 12 of chapter 6. Our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, and against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know why the ESV does this. It, it doesn't exactly uh, translate the Greek words consistently between 3.10 and 6.12. But the same words that are used in 3.10 for rulers and authorities are the same words that are used in 6.12 that are translated 
uh, principalities and powers. Same words. So apparently, uh, we make this manifestation to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's the same group that's recorded in Ephesians 6.12. The principalities and powers. The world rulers of this darkness against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So in answer to the question, to whom is this great manifestation of the manifold wisdom of God directed, I say it's to the entire spirit realm. Especially to the spiritual forces of evil, though I assume also angels are in view. What's the idea? God intends, apparently through the gospel, through this mystery, for there to be this cosmic display of the manifold wisdom of God such that demons and Satan and dark spiritual forces and angels and saints gone before all stand before this incontrovertible effulgent display of the wisdom and glory of God. And they see that Jesus is Lord and that He reigns in His church and that His wisdom is greater than man's wisdom and that the gospel has prevailed and Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ. That display is shown to be true and to be vindicated before the spiritual rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's a big deal. Apparently there's a whole lot more at stake than just the gospel going forth to men and women. There's spiritual hosts that are standing in the face of the glory of God. They view, they observe the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel. Apparently this is part of the purpose of Paul's ministry. That through the gospel, through this mystery entrusted to Paul that is now published to the world and to the Gentiles, conveyed through the church, apparently now is made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Which means the implications of the gospel, the implications of the Christian life extend far beyond merely men and women that we can see. But there's, a, there's actually a spiritual dimension to all of this whereby angels and demons and spiritual forces of darkness are witnessing the manifold wisdom of God. It's a glorious prospect, a glorious thing to consider. But now there's a third question we have to ask the text. How is this revelation or manifestation given? What's the instrument through which the manifold wisdom of God is made known to these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? And the answer is found in the beginning of verse 11. It's through the church. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Uh, But another question emerges in my mind, and that is how. How is the wisdom of God made known through the church to demons and to spiritual forces of darkness and to angels and to Satan? How is it through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known? Some commentators argue the wisdom of God is made known through preaching through the evangelistic ministry of the church or through social justice or through various programs of outreach that the church might embark upon. Um, But I think that that is entirely to miss the point of this passage. The manifold wisdom of God is His plan of salvation. The manifold wisdom of God is His redemptive work in reconciling to Himself through Christ a people for His own glory who are made up of groups who were formerly alienated and hostile toward one another but now in Christ are made one. It's about facts and realities that Christ has brought about. It's about dynamics that just exist in the church. Apart from any sort of active ministry of the church, it's about things God has made us to be. It's about things God has caused to be true. It's about dynamics that are present in the church. So the church makes known the manifold wisdom of Christ by virtue of simply existing as the supernatural community of God's people, united not by ethnicity, not by common cultural heritage, not by socioeconomic background, but by the blood of Christ, which destroys all hostility and alienation. It's by what God has done in making us one. That's the display. It doesn't happen primarily through preachers and and gifted evangelists and missionaries. It happens through the church existing. 
as the supernatural community of God's people who possess this supernatural oneness and unity whereby there's not division, there's not hostility, there's not alienation, but by the blood of Christ we're made one. And by living out those dynamics and existing in those dynamics and being one with one another, united through Christ, this great display of the manifold wisdom of God who has brought this about is made known to the spiritual forces and authorities in heavenly places. The church, by virtue of what it is, by what it has been made by the power of Christ's blood, is the ultimate vindication of the manifold wisdom of God. That is, you want to see God's wisdom uniting Jew and Gentile and bringing all the nations in and making them one through the gospel. Look at the church. There in the church, there where the supernatural oneness exists, that's where my manifold wisdom is revealed and made known. It shows to the rulers, authorities in the spiritual realm that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. That Christ reigns over all, and that He has made the church His bride to be unspeakably glorious in its supernatural love and unity and harmony. So, how is it that the church manifests the wisdom of God, the spiritual powers? I agree with what P.T. O'Brien has written. He says this Paul has in mind neither evangelism, social action, or any other additional activity by God's people. Instead, through the church, signifies that the very existence of this new multiracial community in which Jews and Gentiles have been brought together in unity in the one body is the manifestation of God's richly diverse wisdom. Its presence is the means by which God Himself discloses to the powers His richly diverse wisdom. God is saying to Satan, God is saying to demons, God is saying to spiritual forces of darkness, you want to see the display of my perfect redemptive wisdom? You look at my church. You look what I'm doing in the world. You look at how the nations are being gathered in through the gospel, not through some political program, uh, not through some uh, uh, program of social justice, not through uh, reducing truth to the lowest possible common denominator of like human experience, but through the gospel. The nations are being brought in, and my church is being built, and my people are being made one through the gospel. You look at that, Satan. You look at that demons, you look at that angels, you look at that spiritual forces and authorities in heavenly places. They're in the church. The church that cannot be broken. The church that cannot be defeated. Church that will prevail. It's there that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. It's the supernatural body united across racial and cultural lines made up of Jew and Gentile who are together incorporated into the redemptive plan of Christ. And it's here in the church that you see the display of the manifold wisdom of God. And apparently, this is what Paul understands to be the purpose of his life, the purpose of his ministry, so that through the church, this display might take place, the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places. What I want us to see here is that God's designs for his church are so glorious and so profound and so greater than we tend to think that they are. The church is not just a benevolent institution and some program for social justice or some social club whereby we all get together with like interests and, and, and common uh, uh, enjoyments and pleasures and recreations and hobbies. It's the supernatural body of Christ through which the wisdom of God is being manifest to the world. This raises the bar, doesn't it? Church is so much more than we tend to think. There are spiritual hosts and companies gathered watching what takes place in this place. There are demons. And there is an evil one who is looking at the work of God's church in the world, who's raging against it and is finding that he can't break it, he can't beat it, the church cannot be conquered and defeated. But the church will prevail, the church will advance, the church will go into the world. And every day God is being vindicated. As the church continues to be that supernatural body built up of men and women redeemed by the blood of Christ and reconciled to one another through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's what God is doing here. I didn't know probably three quarters of you 12 months ago. And yet God is building a church. God is uniting a people. God is drawing men and women into family relationships and, and spiritual bonds with one another and forming a church. And this is to be a display to the world. This is to be a display to the lost. 
but it's also to be a display to the spiritual realm. That God is true, though every man be a liar. That His wisdom is greater than man's wisdom. That His plan of redemption will prevail. That the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel is in every way glorious. And as the church is being built, God is being vindicated. And His perfect wisdom is on display. Well, I don't have time to go into applications. I'm praying that the Spirit will seal on our hearts every sort of application that ought to be made. But certainly at the very least, does this not provide us with another reason for why we should fight for unity in the church? For why we should fight for harmony in the church? The stakes are so much higher than just maintaining a very happy company of people who enjoy getting together. There's demons who are looking at us. Satan's looking at us. The angelic host is looking at us. Will we vindicate the manifold wisdom of God by dwelling in unity together? By being one body of people who are united not by uh, our cultural background and our, perfect, our, our, our particular preferences and, and our socioeconomic status, but who are united through the blood of Christ? Will we be a church that vindicates the manifold wisdom of God? Well, may God make it so. May He help us to live out the realities of what we are, a supernatural body of God's people, united not by blood, united not by race, united not by a cultural heritage, but united through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, may God make it so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the plan of redemption. We thank you for your perfect, manifold, many-sided wisdom that you are now making manifest and revealing through this mystery that the nations are brought in and made partakers of the gospel. And you're making this revelation known through your church. That in the church there's this display of the manifold wisdom of God. And this is glorious in our eyes. And it, it stimulates us to want to fight for the testimony of your gospel testimony of your church this stimulates us to want to fight for unity with one another this stimulates us for want to, for, to, to want to walk in harmony and love with one another and we pray that you would enable us to do that and Lord we pray that if there are any skeptics here in this place that as they look at the testimony of your church that they would find their incontrovertible evidence of what Christ has done supernaturally by making his people one we thank you that you're doing this in every place. That throughout the world you have drawn people from various tribes, tongues, people, and nation. And you've brought them together and made them one. And we stand not only here with one another in a local assembly, but with that great company of your people around the world who are displaying your manifold wisdom. We thank you that this is the way you've chosen to work in redemptive history. Sending your son, taking those who were formerly dead and making them alive in Christ, and then uniting individual redeemed sinners to one another in your church. Lord, your ways are so glorious in our eyes, and we thank you, and we bless you. Hear us now as we sing and celebrate the gospel of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen.